Friend or foe? It's an important question. What happens if you don't get the answer right? If you get those categories wrong? One thing that happens is what is called friendly fire. Or fratricide or amicide. Or sometimes called blue on blue. General Persin of France in World War I attributed 75,000 French casualties to friendly artillery fire. 75,000. Could be a couple different reasons for that friendly fire. Could be bad aim, which was part of the problem, they said. Could be just miscommunication, not knowing what unit was where. One of the main reasons is misidentification, not knowing that is a friend or a foe. There are military technologies that have been developed and are still being developed that try to help units in the field and especially aircraft to know, is that a friend or a foe? And you even see that in video games. You have the IFF tag that identify friend or foe. Uh, again, this was something that made headlines uh, just in recent years in the Afghan war. The, uh, there was a famous man, man who was famous for leaving his career in the NFL to go and fight in Afghanistan with the Army Rangers, a man named Pat Tillman. But unfortunately, he met his death, seems, at the hands of friendly fire. Um, and sadly, his own brother's unit. They wrongly identified his unit as an enemy. In our spiritual lives, we need to rightly identify friend from foe. When it comes to our own individual lives, our own physical body, we need to rightly identify friend from foe. We've been talking in this series at the beginning of the year about different aspects of our life, but it's been focused on the heart, new year, new heart. What is our heart towards these things? Your spiritual life, your finances, your relationships, uh, and now your physical body. So the physical heart, we're not talking about the physical blood-pumping organ, but how does your heart relate to your physical body? Let's look at Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, verse 12 through 14, to begin to answer that question. Read with me. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." Pray with me as we look at this text this morning. God, we pray that you would give us eyes to to hear your truth from Romans this morning. Thank you for your truth that speaks to questions about who we are and what our body is. God, we pray that you would help us to use our bodies for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we're going to think through our bodies... Are they friend or foe? That's one question we may ask. 
going to look at this verse. This verse does not give us a, a full theology of, of the human body. There are a lot of other questions and things we could talk about, but it does raise a few things, and we want to get them right. We don't want to misunderstand the human body. We don't want to misunderstand what it is, what it does. One of the first things I think we want to make sure we get right, especially as it relates to this text, is we don't want to wrongly blame the body. We don't want to blame the body. This verse we just read, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make, it, make you obey its passions. It could sound like the body is the problem when it comes to sin. But I don't think that that's what it's talking about. It's talking about what we call indwelling sin, that there is sin that is inside of us. Even those of us who call ourselves Christians, we still have sin. And theologians have, have discussed and have disagreements about where that sin lives in us. Where, where we go to fight that sin. Uh, and because of this text, Romans 6 and a few verses before even, some are led to think that the body is the problem. Because a few verses before this, it says, our old man, which is the, uh, the sin nature inside of us, that's, it's not our body, it's the impersonal part of us, our heart, our soul, the, the non-physical part of us. It says the old man was crucified in Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, the old man is crucified. Past tense, one time for all, crucified. And so some theologians would say, okay, so then the sin nature is gone, but there's still sin coming from somewhere else, and they would blame the body for that. I don't think that, and I'd like to encourage you not to think that, uh, because the rest of Scripture does tell us that while our sin nature was crucified, it was put an end to, we are still told that we must still crucify it. Not past tense one time, but present tense, ongoing, repeated, crucify, put to death the deeds of the body. That's why we're being told here in this verse, don't let sin reign. Because if you didn't do what this verse says, sin would reign. It would still come back. There's still sin in our hearts. And it's not blaming the body. The passage here is addressing the heart. The passage, Paul is saying, heart, don't let sin take over your body. Don't let sin reign in you and then manifest itself through your body. Don't let sin take over your heart and the body do its will, obey its passions. The, the body is not the problem. The problem with us is still our heart. We have a heart that still, still struggles with sin. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. The address is to the heart. We'll expand on that a little bit more as we go, but an important clarification up front. We don't blame our body for our sin. Another thing we don't want to misunderstand is we don't want to separate the body. I'm talking about the body and the spirit, or the body and the soul, the, the, the physical part of us and the non-physical part of us. And they're, they're distinct, but they are not separate. And that's an important thing, because in our culture is a very strong propensity to want to separate these things. You hear this in conversations about gender identity. Individuals who, on the inside, feel like they are different from what their body is on the outside. 
they create a, a separation from how they feel on the inside and what their genetic DNA physical body is. Phrase, I am not my body. You might hear also in the conversations about abortion, pro-life agenda. The separation from of personhood from the physical being. There's a, a clump of cells and it doesn't have personhood until it is born and, and then is able to achieve these other markers of, of awareness or, or independence or things like that. A separation of the physical body from the soul. That is not what is being entertained here. Theologians said that we are embodied souls. We're not just a soul, we're not just a body, we are embodied souls. We are souls in a body, and they are tied together. They're distinct, but they're tied together. We are souls, we are what our hearts want, what they love, what they worship, what they feel, that is us. And we are our bodies. We are who we were created to be, what we were created to look like. We are what our bodies do. That is us. Why does this matter? Not just so that we can get the public policy right on gender, identity, or abortion. This matters because of sanctification. This matters because your heart and your body are at play. Heart, don't let the body be controlled by sin. The heart is responsible. The, sin carry, or the, the body carries that out. We will see later here in verse 13. In contrast to presenting your body to sin, we're told to present yourself to God, and then we're told to present your body to God. Not a separation, but again, engaging the whole person the heart, and then the body in following Jesus. We must pursue righteousness with both the inner and the outer man, both the heart and the body. We're responsible for what our body does. We cannot say, I want to do this, but my body just won't let me. We, we can't say, I, I want to get up earlier in the morning and be diligent, but my body just won't do this. Our body does what our heart wants. I understand there are limitations and weaknesses of our physical body that sin has brought in. And we have to work within those weaknesses and limitations. But our heart controls our body. Our body does what our heart wants to do. And so to follow Jesus, to pursue righteousness, which is the, the phrasing of this text, uh, synonymous with sanctification, with being like Jesus, with synonymous with what we talked about last week, with living in wisdom, to pursue righteousness, we must engage the heart and the body. So let's look at that. If we don't misunderstand the body, let's then also make sure that we don't misuse the body. This next verse, verse 13, tells us how we are to use and not use the body. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Let's look at a few of these words, key words, present. 
do not present your members to sin, but present yourselves to God and your members to God. Present. This is the idea of, of submitting or surrendering something that is yours to someone else. This is the idea that Paul shares later, Romans chapter 12, a few chapters later. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Present your bodies. But this is a whole total submission, right? Present your bodies for what? A living sacrifice, a whole sacrifice. We are giving up our bodies as a sacrifice. They no longer belong to us, if they ever did. We are, pre- we are giving up all the rights to God as a living sacrifice. It's the idea of enslavement. The Romans chapter 6 carries on after the verses we're looking at, but talks about being slaves to righteousness as opposed to being slaves to sin. We are submitting ourselves. We are surrendering to the control of one thing or the other, either slaves of right, sin or slaves of righteousness. Who will you be enslaved to? Pastor Mark Dever, when he was preaching on this text, he said that you cannot be free of both sin and of God. We are made to worship and serve. Will you be enslaved to sin or enslaved to righteousness? I want you to remember, encourage you to remember, that to submit yourselves to be an enslaved sin of God is a good thing. Remember last week we, we sang about and spoke about the, the gentle Savior that Jesus is. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. To submit ourselves to his slave mastership is not the same as the slave master of sin. It is good. It is gentle. We also see here the principle with Paul of put off, put on. He's not just saying, stop submitting your bodies to sin, and that's it. He's saying, put off, put on. Stop submitting to your bodies to sin, and instead submit your bodies to righteousness, to God for righteousness. We have to replace our sinful behavior with something else. That's a principle all throughout Scripture. So we present, we submit, we surrender. Our members, the idea here is tools or instruments. It uses the word as instruments of righteousness or unrighteousness. Your body is the equipment to carry out the desires of your heart, what you were created to do. It pains many good craftsmen to see tools that are used for the wrong purpose, right? To see a nice, fine woodworking tool being used as a chisel and being pounded on hurts the heart of many good woodworkers. Our bodies were created as tools for us to implement the righteousness that God wants us to pursue and not as instruments for unrighteousness. Our, our body is a friend to us to help us pursue righteousness. Present your members to, to whom? Again, the question, who will you be enslaved to? And this is also the question that we asked at the beginning, friend or foe? It's not just important to identify your, your body as a friend or a foe and identify it correctly as a friend But who will you submit your body to? Will you surrender your body to a friend or to a foe? It's the same act, submission, surrender. It's the same act, 
but who you're surrendering to has very different consequences. A soldier in the Pacific theater of World War II would have very different results if he submits himself to his commanding officer and if he submits himself to his captor in the Japanese army, right? Same action, but very different results. Are you going to submit yourself to a friend or to an enemy? To sin for unrighteousness or to God for righteousness? I want to walk through some specific examples with you about what that looks like. But I, before we get to that, I want to qualify this. The question is not just what we do, not just what we're doing, is that to God for righteousness or to sin for unrighteousness, but the question is also why. Sometimes that determines whether we're pursuing righteousness or unrighteousness. Question why can be somewhat complicated, somewhat nuanced. It's not always an easy answer. And I, I don't want to ask this or go here to make this more complicated than it has to be or to find sin where otherwise it would seem to be good. But God does care about the heart, not just what we do on the outside, but why we're doing it. I don't want to heap condemnation on that every good thing that we're doing may have some tinge of the wrong motive, although that may be true. There is good to be said about doing good things, even if not they're fully and completely good, they may still be truly good. But we also want to see the opportunities that we have to submit ourselves to God for righteousness that we may not be doing yet. So I want you to think, why? Not just what are we doing, but why? And like I said, that can be complicated. You could answer the question, why are you doing that? And you could say, because I enjoy it, because it brings me pleasure. And that itself is not either right or wrong, necessarily. God is not opposed to all pleasure in the universe. God created us to find pleasure in things. He created things for us to enjoy. We read in 1 Timothy 4, God created everything that is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. God created things for us to enjoy and for us to worship him because we've received those things. We, we thank him. We enjoy things that he created so we love the creator more. So the question of why could be I'm enjoying that but on a deeper level enjoying it because I'm knowing my Savior and Creator more. Or it could be, I'm enjoying it, but I'm enjoying it just for me. And that can be the, the dark side of the good things that we enjoy, where we enjoy them, and that's the end of the story. There's no thought of God. It doesn't make me love Him more or worship Him more. And I think that that is the danger that Romans 1 speaks about, that we love the creation more than the Creator. If we can love the creation without rising to worship the creator, there's a danger there. And I think that's the essence of idolatry. Not that we're loving something, if we could quantify it, that we're loving something more than we love God, but that we're loving something and it doesn't lead us to love God. I think that is the essence of idolatry of the good things of this world. Maybe this will make sense as we unpack some examples well, look here with uh, some specific categories. Present your eyes or your ears to God or to sin. 
sin, some very clear examples, presenting your eyes or your ears, what you receive, what you observe, what you entertain yourself with, unrighteousness, clear examples, pornography, or other wicked things in entertainment. Do not submit the members of your body for those pursuits of unrighteousness. It's not what they were made for. Instead, submit them to God for his righteousness. To behold God's glory in creation. That is what our sensory organs were designed for, to see those things, to enjoy them, to enjoy nature, to enjoy entertainment, to enjoy the arts, so that we love God more. But the middle category there, if you're following along in your, in your table, in your notes, is that we can enjoy those things without worshiping God. We were created, those things were created for us to enjoy so that we worship God more. And if we settle for just enjoying them, just pursuing a love of nature, sunsets and bird watching and collecting seashells like Pastor Matt mentioned a couple weeks ago, with no view of God, that may be a wasted pursuit of unrighteousness or pursuing good music or books or movies without turning your heart to God. That may be submitting your eyes, your ears to unrighteousness. Similarly with our mouth, what we consume. Some clear examples of pursuing, submitting that to unrighteousness, gluttony, eating too much, or drunkenness, or underage drinking. Even if you're not drunk, if you're breaking the law to consume that substance, that's a pursuit of unrighteousness. Same with addiction to chemicals. Even if you're not addicted, if you're breaking the law to consume that thing, that's a pursuit of unrighteousness. What should we do to submit ourselves to God for righteousness with our mouth? We should eat and drink to sustain life. That would be a good thing. I think that would please God, sustain our own life, eating and drinking. But we can eat and drink and enjoy the things God has given us in a way that worships God. 1 Corinthians 10 is very specific about that. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. But there's that middle category, again, where we could eat things and enjoy them. We may not be gluttonous. We may not be eating too much. But if we love the food or the drink without that rising to us loving God more, that may be just an exercise in pursuing unrighteousness, submitting our mouth to unrighteousness. Let's look at some other examples here. The tongue. Some clear things in scripture that we are not supposed to use our tongue for, what we speak, what we say. We should not lie, slander, gossip, any obscene talk or coarse jesting in Ephesians or Colossians there. Filthiness, foolish talk, corrupting talk, kind of some over-encompassing categories there. What should we use our tongues for? We should be praising God. We should be singing praise to God. should be sharing the gospel. should be thanks presenting thanksgiving we should be praying speaking truth and love speaking encouraging words there is that danger in the middle category again that we could be doing these things these good things but in pursuit of man's praise instead of god the tongue what about your hands and your feet that makes me think you know the, the things that we do activities hobbies occupation clearly Unrighteousness, stealing, illegal activities, participating in false worship. I hope none of you are, you know, 
sacrificing animals to an altar somewhere. Um, that could be something you do wrong with your hands or your feet. But there are good things that you work with your hands and your feet to support yourself, your family, that you work to serve others. You work to be able to give. You enjoy the activities that you get to do with your hands and your feet. There were several of you a week ago who enjoyed playing volleyball for hours. You can enjoy and love your God because he enabled you to do that. We can enjoy those things without worshiping God. We could pursue those things for man's praise. We need to be, be careful of that. We work for a, a good name or the prestige that that brings. We could work for materialism or possessions. There is a, kind of follows the pattern. I don't know if you've picked up on this. These categories, kind of like that kid's song, right? Be careful little ears what you hear. Be careful little eyes what you see. Careful little feet where you go. This is one that's not in that song. Let me be delicate in saying, what about your sexual anatomy? This is part of your body. Unrighteousness. Any sexual activity that is outside of marriage. Using your body to bring pleasure to anyone other than your spouse, and that includes exclusively yourself. What should your body be used for? It should be used to bring the pleasure of a married couple. That is a good thing that God designed, and that should lead you to worship. should lead you to serve your spouse. should not enjoy that without worshiping God more, without loving God more. I want to get to some bigger picture ones, not specific parts of our body, but the whole body. What do we do with clothing? How do we clothe the body that we have? You can clothe it in a way that is a pursuit of unrighteousness, that you dress to impress, that you dress just to draw attention to yourself. You can clothe it in a way that would be immodest. I want to qualify that. We use the word modest, immodest, modesty, but I think that that may not be the most helpful question Oftentimes that gets into discussions of cultural expectations or skirt lengths or necklines, and that's not the heart of what God is talking about. Authors Tim Challies and R.W. Glenn wrote a book called Modest, Men and Women Clothed in the Gospel, and they, they make the case that the question we should be asking is not necessarily, is it modest, but is it chaste? The Bible doesn't actually use the word modest in that regard. Modest just means what's appropriate for the setting, what's appropriate for uh, that time and place. And in our culture, that goes all over the place. The better question is, is it chaste? Are you using your body in the way that it was intended? Are you clothing your body in the way it was intended? Not to draw attention to your body, not to use your body to attract someone who's not your spouse. That's the question of, of chastity, not of modesty. Are you, using, are you dressing yourself, different question, to earn God's favor? This gets into the question of maybe what you wear on Sundays. Don't, stay with me, I'm not condemning at all dressing up on Sundays. I'm, I'm wearing a suit. But why? Not what you're wearing, but why? 
are you doing it thinking that you're earning God's favor based on what you're wearing? That is not righteousness. Contrast that. Can you enjoy clothes? Yes, those are some of the things that God created for us to be, to be enjoyed and receive with thanksgiving. Clothes, shoes, if, if that's your particular, uh, that's particular Ben. ben. Uh, enjoy those things, receive them with thanksgiving. We can dress in a way not to draw attention to ourselves. I don't know, there's not really many specific ways that we should dress to specifically draw attention to God. More often, probably the pursuit is that we dress in a way not to draw attention to ourselves, that it's not about us. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy the clothes you have. You can't enjoy comfortable clothes. I am thankful that I get to wear tri-blend t-shirts instead of burlap, Right? I'm thankful for that. I think I can worship God because of that. Not to draw attention to yourself. Can you dress in a way to honor God? Can you dress up to honor God? Yeah. I don't believe that God commands or expects that to happen with everybody on every Sunday. But can you show up on Sunday dressed in your best to show honor and reverence to God? Yes. On the other hand, I would say, can you dress in a casual way, and honor God? I would say yes, and I, I would hope so if the rest of the days on, that it's not Sunday, we're not dressed in our suit, that I can still honor God. I can honor God on a Monday when I'm in my work clothes. I can honor God on a Tuesday night when I'm in my pajamas and I wake up and I pray to him. He doesn't have a bar of acceptance that includes what you're wearing. I'm thankful for that. That's why we don't either as a church. You can show up in your best and glorify God that way. And you can show up in casual and represent your casual relationship with God, that he is a friend. We can show up and dress in a way that doesn't say you have to meet this minimum standard of dress to be welcome at our church or for God to hear you. Those are some good reasons that we could have for the way that we dress, even though we may end up dressing differently. You want to know why I'm wearing the tie that I'm wearing today? Because my son picked it out. I wanted to show love to him. Nothing to do with the rest of you, just, just my son, okay? Clothes. Not for man's praise, not for our own enjoyment, but to worship God and serve others. One other category, actually a couple more here. Health and longevity. Pursuing unrighteousness, if you are not pursuing good health, if you are not submitting yourselves to good health but poor health, if you don't rest, that is a pursuit of unrighteousness, and that speaks as much to the heart as it does to the physical body. If you're careless with your life, if you pursue danger, that is a pursuit of unrighteousness. The converse side of that is the idea we have of stewardship, that we are a steward of our bodies, that we eat healthy, that we exercise appropriately, that we rest. Now, I do want to say stewardship, I want to qualify this, stewardship, whether it's a stewardship of your body, a stewardship of your finances, a stewardship of your time, those are not ends in and of themselves. A pursuit of always taking care of your body will lead you to other kinds of, of 
idolatry. We pursue taking care of our body so that it can be used for other purposes, not for its own sake. So whether it's the body, whether it's time, whether it's money, stewardship requires that at some point you have to give. You have to sacrifice something that you're trying to preserve. Stewardship of your money never means that you never spend any money. You have to sacrifice something you're trying to preserve in pursuit of bigger goals. Your body. Sometimes you have to sacrifice some rest in pursuit of your bigger goals. There may be times you have to stay up late and get something done. You have to take the hit and and be the one that puts in more work and, and effort to serve your family or serve someone else. There are exceptions. The overall idea is that we are stewardshipping our body. We are taking care of it, but it is for a bigger purpose. We should be able to enjoy the health we have. We all have health in different measures. None of us have perfect health. We all have something that doesn't work right. We should enjoy what we can do with what we have. A right use of our body also should lead us towards a willingness to sacrifice that. I was talking about that a little bit with stewardship. Sacrifice your health or your life for others. There are some bigger ways that happens. Mothers, you do that. You give up the health and the comfort of your bodies for at least nine months. And then often afterwards and often for the rest of your life because your body is never the same for having carried a child. And that is a right and good and noble use of your body, pursuit of God's glory. Paul speaks of it to a different degree, that we should be willing to, be spe- to spend and be spent for others for the sake of the gospel. Be willing to give of our lives if it serves others in the sake of the gospel. That is the, the heart of many, many, many missionaries. It doesn't have to be just missionaries. I think the, uh, well, forgetting who it is, Count, Count von Zinzendorf, I think he said, no, Ulrich Zwingli, some guy with a Z in name. Ulrich Zwingli said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Should be willing to spend and be spent in the pursuit of the gospel. Some ways that may look good on the outside but still have some questionable motives. We could be doing that for man's praise. We could be fleeing all sorts of risk. It may be, look like stewardship, but we're f- avoiding all sense of risk or danger, trying just to preserve our life. Or you could just be looking for man's praise, pursuing really good health so that you have that gym body that you can show off on Instagram. It's not the same thing as pursuing righteousness. Last category here. Our identity and our image. I referenced this a little bit, but we can leverage our whole physical identity for unrighteousness if we are saying, I determine who I am. I'm going to pick my gender. I'm going to determine who I'm sexually attracted to. Or I'm going to determine what my body image should be. I want my body to look this way, even if it's not what I was given. A pursuit of wrong body image is taking your whole personhood and leveraging it, submitting it to unrighteousness. We should rather submit to God's created design. God created us who we are, who we should be. That's a bunch of things. One thing after the other. 
And I don't want that to, uh, to land the wrong way. It should be weighty. It should help us to see more than just the New Year's Day resolution, I want to exercise more and eat better. Pursuing godliness, righteousness with our body involves a lot of different things. And things that we all probably are feeling a little weighty about. Things that we need to grow in and change. But I don't want to give off any sense of hopelessness. So I want to end up kind of back where we started. The, the title of the sermon here that we should surrender but not surrender. So if you will, read with me the last verse. Verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Paul wraps this idea up with this, these ideas, which may not seem immediately clear, but there are, are two parts here that I, I think help us. We should surrender, but not surrender. We should surrender to grace. Paul is saying here, and he only says this one other place in Scripture, that we are under grace. Not that we've been given grace, but we are under grace. We have submitted to it. We are surrendered to grace. We are living under the rule of grace. And we maybe not always think about grace that way. We think of, of grace as something that, that makes no obligations to us. And we should, that should be true. When it comes to the gospel, what we must believe to be saved, there, there is no requirement, no expectation that we do anything but the bigger category of God's economy of grace means that if we have believed with saving faith that there is an expectation that we live that out. To live under grace means that grace will lead us to obedience. So in some way, grace is, still makes demands on us. It still is a slave master. And this is the idea that was entertained earlier. This is not a separate category Paul is just giving it a different name, grace. We are still submitting ourselves to following God and being under his rule. You must submit to that. Maybe you aren't quite sure what that looks like. Maybe, maybe you're feeling more what the first part of the verse talks about. You feel like sin has dominion over you. Or you feel the condemnation of the law, of all the sin that you have done, the laws that you have broken. Maybe you are fearful of what we find at the end of this chapter, chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. We read that earlier in the service. And I encourage you to look to this God who offers grace, has grace with some expectations, Maybe you're thinking about this God who is, calls himself a slave master, but these people are acting like that's a good thing. God says it's a good thing. Submit yourself to grace, to this slave master of God. The wages of sin is death, but there is a free gift of God, and that is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't have to do anything to earn that. You just have to turn in faith to this Savior. And it is that faith that allows what we're talking about here to be real, 
this life of grace, this life of pursuing righteousness, that there is not dominion of sin and they're not under the law, but that you can live out grace, you can live in obedience because of gratitude and love and not fear of condemnation. If you're not sure about that, if you're not sure what that means or what that looks like, I encourage you to ask yourself if that's what you want. If you want to come talk to me more, I'd be glad to talk to you more about what that would look like to not be under the dominion of sin, but to have a life of grace. Those of you who have experienced that, who have repented of your sin and found faith in Christ, you're under grace, and we must submit to that. We must follow the law of grace. We've been brought from death to life. We read in 1 Corinthians 10, you are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Grace expects that we use our body well. We don't let sin reign in it. And it's what we were talking about here, that we don't choose to use our body for unrighteousness, but we choose to use it for righteousness. It's a layer deeper than that. It's what was at the beginning of chapter 6, talking about crucifying Not just not choosing sin, but putting sin to death. Crucifying sin. This is not supposed to be a peaceful transition of power. When God comes and changes your life and takes over mastership of you from sin. This is supposed to be violent. Supposed to be like what the large primate species do when there's a new alpha male that takes over the clan. What happens? He goes and kills all of his rivals. That's what this takeover is supposed to be like. When Jesus comes in, we're supposed to put to death sin so that it has no mastery over us. Be killing sin or it will be killing you, in the words of John Owen. We must submit, must surrender to grace so that we do not keep letting sin reign. But don't surrender. Don't give up. As much as you may have felt like that list was just one thing after the other where you need to work, don't give up. There is hope. The fact that we are under grace is not just an obligation, it is a promise. There is grace. We are not under law. The old man is crucified. We're not under sin anymore. You're not a slave to sin. Sin's not in charge anymore, as one of our kids' songs goes. And you're not under law. There's no condemnation for your sin. The law never helped anyone not sin. It just heaped on condemnation. You're not under law. You can not sin now because you are under grace. You are brought from death to life. This is not just the body and the heart we're talking about. We're talking about God giving you his spirit. It's not just your heart controlling your body, but God in his grace, makes you alive and gives you his spirit. We read a couple verses later, chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and if you're a believer, he does, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Give your bodies life so that you can pursue righteousness. That's how Jesus' yoke is easy. His burden is light. He gives his spirit to you so you can do what grace asks you to do. 
so that you're able to present your whole self, your whole body to God for righteousness so that you can say sin will not have dominion over you. That's how this happens. We're going to end up looking at communion table here this morning. The mystery of God taking on a human body, taking on flesh, becoming one of us and then sacrificing that so that we can use our bodies for his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you've created us to be. Thank you that you've given us physical bodies to carry out what you've put in our hearts to do. And God, we pray that we would submit those hearts and submit our bodies to you for righteousness, for your glory. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.